Welcome to Rise and Rouse, a podcast for people who give a damn. This is our second episode of the first season, and we're already gaining momentum. We're at over 160 downloads and counting so far. I'm truly touched by the outpouring of support from all of you. This is your host, Erin Olkid, social impact strategist and consultant. I'm also an avid consumer of sci-fi shows and other media. I even took a course in college on writing about science fiction. That leads me to introduce my guest. This week on Rise and Rouse, you'll hear my conversation with Tori Stevens of Grist Magazine. He works in their climate solutions lab and runs Imagine 2200, a climate fiction storytelling contest. We cover so much ground in this conversation with a predominant theme around the importance of hope, joy, and imagination in envisioning the sustainable, equitable future we are all longing for. A quick correction. In this episode, the book Bowling Alone is referenced. The book is written by Robert D. Putnam, not Michael Moore. Link to the book will be in the show notes. Thank you so very much for being with me here today, Tori, on the Rise and Rouse podcast. I'm so excited to have you here because I got to meet you pre-COVID, you know, which feels like a lifetime ago, probably 2018 or 2019, I want to say as you were just getting started with the FIX team over at Grist. And we were, um, you came to talk to some of my activist friends and I about some of the cool work that you were doing and doing the network weaving aspect of things. So I, as you know, like really wanted to have this conversation with you because I think all of the stuff that you're doing is very, very cool and impactful. And this was just a great opportunity for us to actually connect again too. If you don't mind just giving, sharing like a little bit about your background and how you came to the work that you do and yeah, just like how kick-ass you are. I appreciate that. Really appreciate being on this, your first entrance into podcasting and talking with people and I get to sit on the proverbial couch. So I should just start with how we met. That was a really, that was the first event that I'd ever done with Grist and Fix. It was weird for me because I was a consultant. I helped find some of the people to come to this amazing event where all these climate solution-focused individuals from New England were coming to. And at the same time, they invited me as a participant. So uh, they weren't really totally sure if I was going to be on board for the team. And this was a big moment for me because I my background is fundraising. I've been a storyteller in fundraising. So I don't know if many people know this, but there's a lot of storytellers in fundraising because you have to tell a story to the audience to get folks to understand the issue that you're advocating for, to get them excited or angry or happy or sad about the particular thing that you're focused on. So I've been doing that for 12 years before I made my way to Grist and Fix. I was the person who wrote the letters that you receive in the mail and online. And I was also at the intersection of when things were like, I very much started out sending 55,000 letters a year out to people on a quarterly basis. So we would send out mail, like real mail <laughs> that you receive. And one of the things that I noticed and that I loved about storytelling is there was a big argument that was happening in storytelling around fundraising. And it was, do you lead with statistics? Do you lead with these hey, we just, you know, a million people, we signed them up for Medicaid or Medicare, or we like defended it so that a million people didn't lose their Medicaid or Medicare. 
Um, I bring up those examples because I was in the healthcare field, and I would say the health advocacy field, I should say, so different from like health insurance and all that. But I was on the other side of the argument that you focus on one person, that you focus on Brenda and Brenda's situation and how that has impacted her life. And I was losing that argument for a long time because the standard way of telling the story was, no, we want to show what these people's, your, your fundraising dollars have done and that we did this big thing, which was for a million people. But I was like, no, we need to connect on an emotional level between the fundraiser and just one person. And so that was like where I made my like kind of, I don't want to call it like career, but it was like where I staked a claim in fundraising where I said, no, we should be doing it more like this. And one of the things that um, really moved me to kind of believe in this like way of doing things was, I don't know if you've heard of this thing called Humans of New York. I thought it was so cool at the time, like all these people were sharing it, it blew up. And it was I, I, just for the listeners out there, this blog or kind of like online blog that started on Facebook was this gentleman went out and just interviewed a random person in New York every day and really wanted to know about their story. And it took off because people really love to hear about people's stories. And so that blog helped me make the case for why this kind of storytelling would work in fundraising. And then we started doing some tests and it really did start to work in our fundraising numbers actually went up from there. So that's like my background fundraising. And over the course of three years now, I made my way over to a media organization called Grist. And I'm on the solutions lab, I should say the climate solutions lab called Fix. And the way we're different from Grist is that Grist is focused on the news and the media and everyday events that happen in the news. So if something happens, like say Joe Biden just tomorrow decides to fire the head of the EPA, my team would care about it, but we're not going to write about it. The Grist news side would definitely have to write about it because the news cycle and like the things that happen on a day-to-day basis really set the tone for what they do in their office. But for us, we're focused on climate solutions and the people behind them. So we're not controlled by the news cycle. We pick and choose who we want to highlight and put in front of the audience that Grist has because we find those people exciting, passionate, and focused on a climate solution that is really going to do something for our climate in the future or could if everyone gets behind it. So I made my way over to the fixed team right around the time that I met you. And I was really happy to be kind of working for this new organization because I I think I've talked to you about this and I've definitely publicly talked about this. I was in this socially isolating period of time in my life where I was traveling to work five hours a day on a train. So two and a half hours in, two and a half hours home, and it was only a 40, like it's a 45 minute drive out from Boston on a regular day without traffic. But I didn't have a car at the time. So, and I'd like to support the kind of infrastructure we need to kind of get to the future, a clean future. So that's how I made my way to the FIX team. I was in the socially isolating period. And then once I was offered this opportunity to work for FIX, it opened up five hours for me, and I was looking to make a jump from healthcare or health advocacy to climate because I thought that was where the fight and I wanted to put my energy in. And so now I work on this project called Imagine 2200, which is a climate fiction uh, contest initiative program at GRIS that is focused on getting us to or focused on looking at what 
future worlds would look like in writing, in fiction. So the writers who submit to this initiative, they write stories, fictional stories, that imagine a world of abundance, imagine a world of hope, imagine a world of if we had just solutions and um, frontline communities working out the solutions. And sometimes people don't even work out like like the in-between part. It's really, this is the world we want. And this is, it's almost utopian sometimes. It's not always utopian, which I really want to stress. It's not a utopian project, but that is a part of the kind of like, if there's like 20 stories out there, we're probably going to get five or six that show the end result of a world that of what we could have if we focused on green, clean, and just solutions. I love that so much. I don't know if you and I have talked about this per se, but just that when you're doing that kind of visioning work, like you don't, you don't map out all of those different steps, right? Like there's no, that there's something lost sometimes when you're trying to actually map every single piece there. And people get so lost in those details too, that that just is, it's such a big impediment to kind of being able to do the big visioning work. So I love that you're getting those utopian stories, uh, you know, amidst the other ones too. I mean, that's what we should, right. we should have that, right? Yeah. And you said something that I haven't touched on, um, even though I did speak for a long time, <laughs> um, is visioning. Like I, if you would ask me and this is, I'm a really open person to different things like, you know, people's ideas. I'm not like a closed book where I'm like, this is what I believe. And if you have your things, like, keep them there. No, I like like engaging with different people because they have different ideas and perspectives. Yet when I was presented with this opportunity came up to have a visioning session with climate solution focused individuals, I was like, what? Visioning? Like that's some like woohoo, like I just wasn't interested because I was so coming from the health advocacy world and just advocacy in general, I was very much focused on the three and fundraising. Like what can we do in six months to help people? What can we do in three months to help people? But after doing visioning work, what I realized is that being pulled outside of what you're doing in looking at maybe the end goal or the world you want, it's like a, you know how you have mission and visions for um, nonprofits or, or companies or whatever? It helps to kind of see the world that you actually want. And so by visioning, you can do that. So, you know, now I'm like a full proponent that visioning can help like any sector. Like if you're in policy, which is like, why should I look at like 150 years from now? Like, because you want to know the world that you want and dream in a like a state that's not like confined by the the things that we're going through right now. So I'm really glad you brought up visioning because I guess I'm like an advocate of it now. So many people who like want to come into doing this kind of social change work. I mean, they, of course, have that aspirational aspect of the things that they they want to they want to create change in the world. But then you've got those hard line folks who are just like everything has to be practical all the time. And, we, you know, we have to keep our eye on just like the always the practical thing. And it's like if you don't have that imagination part of things, if you don't have that ability to be creative, it's so easy, I think, to get downtrodden in that pursuit of the of the world you want to create, I guess. Yeah. So this reminds me of like what I was talking about with fundraising and how there's this like there was this battle between statistics and the human interest, I'll call it like side of things where you focus on like the one person versus like the big picture and the goal. 
I just think like that moment could have been a place where we did some visioning exercise, brought the full team into the room and had like a really thoughtful discussion around instead of instead it was just like, we need to move. We need to make the decision. This this is like, why are we going to try this new thing? That's risky, you know, and then there's also the in-between. Can we try to like do both? And so we did actually find a way where we did both in the the letter that you got there was um the focus was on like i'll use the fake person brenda again but in the column on the far right there was like this like running kind of like almost like twitter thread kind of statistics of all the goals that we had you know achieved and like what we could achieve so in a way it was like the tldr if you wanted to just move over to the right and like read the kind of like bulleted points of the statistics instead of like talking about statistics which is just like to me It's not what a person who's receiving an appeal should receive. They should receive something emotional because that's why they got involved and that's why they donated in the first place. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I know that I don't get swayed by statistics. I'm totally going to botch this, but like Adam Grant's new book, I don't know if you had a chance to read that or it's called Think Again. I love his work and he's a cis white man, I'll be honest there. And I don't tend to read a lot of cis white men's books for obvious reasons, I think. But he he talks about that there's a couple of different kinds of um, kind of personas that you need to embody depending on the type of persuasion, essentially, that you're trying to do. So there's the politicking, there's the the preacher, and uh, there's the, the, like, the academic, I think. And so there's a couple of different ones. I'm no one missing right. one of those. But, like, so it's kind of like you have to be really intentional about what you deploy and kind of where mm. you deploy it in order to be able to get people to really start thinking in the way you want them to to think. And it's, I don't know, I thought that was brilliant because I'd never thought about it, like, kind of broken down in that way before. I'll have to check that out for sure. Yeah, definitely worth it. It's his, and his Twitter and his, like, social media is fantastic, too, I would say. So one of the things I also wanted to talk about, too, just you know, this big picture of what we're all trying to work towards, which is, in my mind, and in the way I usually frame it, is a sustainable, equitable future. I think you and I both see that hope is, like, such an important part of that and, like, a key piece in trying to be able to work towards that, towards that future. And so one of the things we had talked about, and I'm paraphrasing what you had said now, but it's just hope is a verb, a praxis, a philosophy. And I was just like, yeah, that's fantastic. You know what I mean? It just, there's like that hits me right in my heartstrings, you know, hearing those words. So I would love for you to just talk a little bit more about that and and your kind of perspective on on hope and how it's important in this work. Yeah, I I guess I'll start with like, this for me is a journey and hope is something that I'm exploring publicly with other people because I, as I said before, I'm interested in other people's thoughts, opinions, and like I really like I think that we public not publicly, but I think collectively, we need to explore and redefine hope or maybe not even redefine it, but just like talk about it more instead of just being like, that's hopeful. Like, so what do you mean by that's hopeful? Like, why is it hopeful? How does it bring you hope? For me, what I've found is that hope is like you said, um, I think we talked about before is hope is a verb. So it's not a sentiment. Um, it can be. But I think it's more powerful when it is an action. And so the way that I found this uh, is through FIX. We have this list called the GRIS 50. And all the people who we focus on are, we call them sometimes climate solutionaries 
or just solutionaries. They're focused on climate solutions and they're hopeful people. They think that we can get out of this crisis and they're taking action to get out of this crisis. So that has given me hope, you know, and then the work that I've done with Imagine 2200 um, has given me hope. So we need more projects and more focus on hope in an active way. So if you have a hope for something, I hope that you will go out there and make it something that is public, that is community driven, that is collective, and then talk about like why that's, you know, it needs to be hopeful because we all need a story to kind of um, drive us forward. And I think what right now we need more than ever is hope. I often talk about this a lot. We, and I love dystopian stories. And I consume them, I share them, some of my favorite movies are dystopian, but we also need hopeful stories. And I'm not talking about, and this is no dig on that movie, but like movies like The Help. We need like hopeful stories that are showing us how we are going to get out of this crisis and other ones, Um, whether it be like the racial injustice that's happening in America, what would it look like if we were, you know, a more equitable society and getting um, away from that? What kind of battles would, challenges and battles would we have to fight? That gives me hope because people are saying, you know, I'm drawing the line here and I want to see the world that I want. And so futurism in a way has helped me in, in this visioning that we were talking about, has helped me open up a space where I can be like, all right, well, the last few years haven't, hasn't been hopeful, but what would it look like if we had the th- got the things that we want? If the Green New Deal passed, if Trump had never been president, like, <laughs> and other things of that nature. So I'm bringing it to like kind of this imaginative space and to this fictional space. But I also, because of the real world things that fix and gris the folks that we interact with who are doing climate solutions in a non-fictional way, that brings me hope. So I'm like dealing with hope in two different, very interesting spaces. Um, one where people are, you know, delivering real climate solutions, whether it be like microbes eating plastic or these fiction stories that I uh, get to engage with via Imagine 2200. Yeah, it sounds like hope is an investment in the future. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm so love that and just kind of thinking about what our world is going to look like i think we just came off of the midterms which whatever this airs like that'll be long gone you know long story but we saw like such a youth turnout and that to me starts to give me like feel like hope there too that there's like a there's an active changing of and shifting of the tides and things like that and that i start to think about like what does my active hope look like in helping to foster that kind of future that like these that the young people are actually care about too i say young like we're not also young because i think we're also still young so not middle aged yet yeah (laughs) i'm kind of hoping there so it's i think i felt really nervous going into like midterms and then i was like okay like we've been preparing ourselves for the worst i was so stressed out didn't sleep and i think that was the experience for a lot of people too and it made me reflect upon how we are so conditioned to just stealing ourselves against the worst that could happen. And so sometimes because we're so, so focused on like the worst that could possibly happen and we're preparing ourselves for that, that it doesn't allow that hope to necessarily come in. And so I just assumed I was going to wake up on Wednesday morning and be like, feel the same way I did when Trump was elected. 
I wish I didn't have to have it as that kind of a lesson. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have just been hopeful and and like embodied it a little bit better kind of going into that. But that's also, I guess, just to say that this is like a one you know period of time. And in this longer kind of arc that we're working towards, towards the more to the beautiful future that we're working, that we want to envision and inhabit, really. That's a meandering way of just basically saying that I think hope is so fluid too and i think that there's and it's a we need to like you had said before a praxis also we actually have to do it you know we actually have to like actively work at it in order to not get consumed i think by despair yeah and inspect it and like check it and like check in about it with our community friends and family and be like when's the last time you talked about a friend about like hope or what is hopeful or your community, or how come we don't have community events that are like in a barn, like somewhere down the street, that's like, hey, what's bringing this community hope? If that's important, then we should invest in it collectively. And if we're all kind of, we don't all have to be in total agreement, but if we're all like, oh, this is really hopeful about our community, like it could be even small things. Like we just created like a footpath for like bikers and that's hopeful, right? So let's do more of that. So it's the small things to the big things. And the thing with Imagine 2200, which is the climate fiction out of grist that I really love is I don't have all the visions for what hope could be or what a beautiful and just society could be. But I get to now read those and consume those. And now in, in like that's that's engaging and that's helpful. You know, and I, I was talking to somebody recently just about the difference between community care and self-care and how it's like we're just so conditioned in our you know capitalistic you know oppressive society to just want to be isolated to be siloed and to do everything in such an individualized way and I've been thinking about it from a how important it is for say my you know my partner to come with me when I'm going to visit a friend so that he can watch you know like my friend's son so that my friend and I can go have that space together. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I had to frame it to him in that way where it was like, this is about the kind of world we want to live in. You right. know, this, and that I, I just, it had never kind of clicked for me, I guess, until that moment when I was starting to describe it and say how important that was so that he could take, take that, make the time to be able to do something like that, that he's a little uncomfortable with, like taking care of like a kid is not exactly like his favorite thing to think about <laughs> right uh, but it like it would free me up to be able to do the care i need to with a with my friend anyway so it's a long story but just i'm realizing like we need to how how important that is to show up there's a couple threads i picked up for one i think that story is a really valuable story because it's a really great illustration of how we could change as a society like if men did more care work in general um, emotional work in general. And that includes myself because I definitely, um, have issues that have to do with my gender or like how I've been, um, raised that I would love to kind of like shed so that I'm a better human being. And a lot of that has to do with like the emotional parts of myself and like, you know, care work and, um, things that are not seen as like for my gender, but I'm still working on that. And I applaud you to push your partner to kind of work on that that opening up that space and you're talking about care as a community thing and self-care is kind of like this buzzword that in some spaces I think is really being built out in a really beautiful way but then other spaces I think is just being used as cover to keep capitalism kind of running 
um, and make you feel like you're doing something for yourself when you're really not, because it does take a community to care for a person. It's like that saying, um, it takes a village. It doesn't just take a village to raise a child. It takes a village to keep everybody kind of whole and healthy and um, for all these things to happen like care work. But one of the things I've been talking about a lot is um, this social isolation thing because it happened to me. And I was like, oh, if this is happening to me, I looked around on the train. How many other people are like five hours a day commuting or in their cars listening to talk radio or whatever? Like there is a huge problem right now in society around social social isolation and social belonging, not feeling like you have a space to, and um, I forget what his name is. God, what's his name? Michael Moore? Is that his name? I forget his name. He's like a uh, left-wing, um, he wrote the book Bowling, Bowling Alone or Bowling, I think it's uh, Michael Moore, but Anyhow, the whole idea of this um, social belonging, social isolation, I think is a little bit why Trump caught on. He gave people that sense of like, you go to the rally, you're not socially isolated. You're a, you have a strong sense of social belonging. There was a story to follow. So I think there's a lot of lessons there, <laughs> bad ones too. But I think that like the undercurrents there around um, what we're missing in society and why he was so successful. A lot of folks could have stepped into that space. How come somebody with a hopeful vision, and, and there were people, to be honest, that that were offering hopeful visions. But yeah, I, I don't know if I digress a little bit um, from the conversation, but I, I think, and maybe we can touch on this a little bit more as we uh, talk today. But for me, social isolation in the lack of belonging in society is tied to hope. And I would also say this other conversation that we wanted to have around joy. So if you fulfill people's needs, and I think hope is a need, uh, joy is a need and something necessary for humans to thrive. If, if they don't have that, what happens? What a fantastic question. I think that you're right. Like people do start to grasp at whatever is available that makes them feel something. You know what I mean? If hope and joy aren't available, then what's the next best thing? I don't know. Well, what's your answer to that, I guess? Yeah, so I, I definitely believe that we need these things. Um, but I, you know, they're, they're in short supply, it seems, right? So uh, you turn on the television, you turn on the news. Where, where is hope? Where is it? Where is it? Like, where is hope? And why is it so in short supply? Like, why aren't we a society that's driven by hope and investing in it? We often point the finger at capitalism. And I think it's like, obviously, an easy for me, it's an easy target. But, you know, there's a lot of components of capitalism. It's not just like this wage and labor structure. It's about the other things, the social things that we're missing. I am a socialist. And half of the reason I'm some people are socialist. We're all different people are different political leanings for a lot of different reasons. Some of it's economics, some, but for me, it's very much, I want to create the social space that socialism offers. So I've spent a good amount of my time in Germany. I have a son in, used to live in Germany, actually now lives with me, but he, he just moved in with me um, after living in Germany for his whole life. And I used to live there and I have an aunt that um, moved there when she was 20. She's now like 50, upper 50s. And so I would go there often and I was amazed. 
you know, in America, there's often like a right wing attack on how people are living on the dole and they're not doing anything. That's wrong, right? Germany is one of the most um, productive countries in the world, right? And it's a, it's not a social socialist country. It's a social democracy, which is like a little bit of a distinction. So, but still, at the same time, it's a very productive society. Yet they have this strong social safety net, and I saw that, and I thought, what are the greatest benefits of that? Is that they get to be social that they have time to hang out with each other, that you have time to organize against when their rights are being taken away. You're not working at some Amazon warehouse for low quality pay and for like hours where you it's hard to organize. So that part of it, that part where you can kind of talk about joy, you can experience joy, you can experience, not that it doesn't happen in America, we do experience joy. It is often a consumer felt joy uh, the word amusement is huge here, right? What if we were reaching for joy instead of amusement? Amusement's a trinket. Joy is like a real thing that you can carry with you for the rest of your life. You know, you can focus on politics and the politics of socialism from an economic standpoint. And I definitely, those are things that I agree with and believe in. But I often like to talk about the space it opens up for humans as a social being. And so that's where I think hope and joy and reaching for those things can kind of fit into our lives easier if we weren't under this really hyper-individualistic capitalist system. And that type of shift would be, you know, extremely helpful for us as social beings and would tackle some of that social isolation and that uh, lack of belonging. I think all sorts of clubs and things would spring up if we all weren't working ourselves to death. One of the ways I think that we could like move into this space is the four-day work week, because that would offer up more time for folks to be able to be with their family, be with their friends, be with their chosen family, and you know work out some of these. What are the then? What are the next steps? Then we would have time to kind of fight for our rights we would like and the ones that we already have. I love the four-day work week, and I think it's like <laughs> it's. I mean, it also just absolutely on board with everything you said too just about like the the ways in which our lives completely transform if we were able to not have to just be so focused on surviving in so many ways and yeah i'm a socialist too very ready for that kind of uh for that revolution whenever it comes and i think that the the four-day work week you know it's something that's elusive it's so hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around but like with covid and coming out of this space where we're just I think so many people started re- re-examining their values and starting to think about what do they actually want to get out of life. You know, that's like one thing that seems like such a slam dunk in so many ways. And it now is just like, how do we convince not only like, I think, institutions to like actually do that. Like that's one big hurdle. And we're starting to see that shift, you know, a little bit here and there. Um, but how do we shift the mindsets around that, too? Because... For me, I, you know, own my own business. I have complete agency over how and when I work. I'm much better than I used to be, but I, I'm still stuck in a grind in a lot of ways. And I'm like, how is it that I'm still working as hard and, and feeling like such, such tremendous amounts of stress? And I have all the control in the world around this. Um, and that's like one of the questions I explore quite often with myself. And, and how do I break free from some of that cycle? Because capitalism is, 
it's not just obviously you were saying before, like it's not just an economic mindset. It is something that or an economic system. It's a mindset that we're embodying as well. And it's so hard to shake that and seeing we're we're swimming in it. And so that's why we go back to things like, oh, we can like buy our self-care. You know what I mean? We can purchase our way to self-care, right? We can buy, right. you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Purchase <laughs> self-care. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's, and it's like there's an industry now of self-care. Like, it's just an industry. It's like attached to the wellness industry. Yeah. No, go on. I, that yeah. was great. No, I just, it's my, I keep thinking about how I've, you know, had to shift my own kind of mindset around self-care and things like that, too. And I was super isolated during um, the first year of COVID, too, because I was living by myself, working for myself. You know, there was like in the beginning there, I had like no joke about like 30 hours worth of Zoom. And that was like for weeks, you know, in the beginning of COVID, because nobody understood how to like transition our work in a way that didn't require us to all be looking at each other. And it's even like my clients who are in like New York were the same way too. They were like, oh, we, we have to be on Zoom now for hours. It's like we didn't, we weren't meeting for hours at a time multiple times a week before. So why do we do this, do this yeah, now? Yeah. Um, it became such a reaction to that kind of stuff. So it was, you know, for me, I, I remember realizing like pretty quickly like that there was no way for me to purchase my way into self-care in those moments and that I actually had to shift the way I was doing things and building my support system in order to be able to like actually survive. I mean, I think all of, a lot of us found those ways in which we've survived the early, the early years of COVID because now we're looking down the barrel of three year mark. You know, how do we actually survive in those moments? And I think, so I guess like maybe that's a question I have for you is like, do we need these kind of like cataclysmic moments to kind of make change? in our own lives, in our own society? Or is it like, is it something we engineer? Is it a combination of both? Like, I, I'm so interested to hear what you what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough one, because I think the really early in the pandemic, it really became really apparent how fragile the whole system is, and how it needs to keep going. Like it, it, there's no break time. Like there's no, there's no break time for this. Like even big, large companies, they're just like their supply chain, supply chains are very tenuous. Um, they even did this on purpose. The, this rapid, um, kind of supply chain thing. I don't know the kind of economic terms that they did, but they moved away from having extra supply and slack in the system on purpose because it's just cheaper to kind of have it a little bit like where you don't really close, you you have just enough, you know? And then when the supply, they found out once the supply chains broke and you don't have a ton of the material in another country and you're just kind of building it as it goes or as it's needed, you know, when you have a shock to the system, you're now stuck without the product that you need. And so there is a moment where the capitalist class, the kind of folks that are running this system, I often call an oligarchy, is a little bit spooked around like what they, they they know they need to react quickly because it could really quickly fall apart. But they did react in a way that helped, you know, turn the tide from folks, you know, getting out onto the streets around, you know, COVID. It did turn out that they ended up doing it around the mandates and the, the vaccine um, protocols. But 
it, it was a lot of people were in a space that you're kind of describing where, you know, are we moving towards revolution? Could could that be a possibility? It felt like there were some like um, moments there where, you know, there were, there could have been, but it quickly, the system reacted in the way that it best knew. And it, you know, gave folks money. And I'm not saying those things are wrong. Like people deserve to have like the needs, their needs met. So I, I never advocate for a collapse because A, if there is a revolution, there is no guarantee that it's going to be a leftist one. There is no guarantee, right? And then B, the folks that are going to be hurt the most are the ones that don't have the support system. So if you don't have some money saved away, if you don't have uh, food stored up or whatever, now if the system collapsed, it's an argument I've been having with like folks in movement spaces for a long time. Folks will call me out as like anti-revolutionary. And so one of the things I have advocated for is more social space for people to organize towards their, I'm not saying like I'm down for revolution, but we're not prepared. <laughs> we're, we're, we're not prepared. We don't have the means like the folks that are like hurting and on the margins, you know, and I, I, I'm also I'm willing to kind of be wrong on this because I know that when people are in dire situation, that is the only choice, right? So it can come that way or it cannot, you know, it, it's kind of like how you were describing hope where there's like these many hopeful futures or not that can happen. When that space opens up for possible revolution, there's many endings to that story and some could be great and some could be not. So yeah, I don't know. It's a really tough conversation to game out and have. I think it's a necessary one to have, but I don't know the answer because it's just so it gets really complicated quick. Yeah. I think about that as like it's a choose your own adventure. And some of them are you're like you're opening the door and falling off a cliff or something like, you know, like we can't that we can't we have to be able to really intentionally bring up bring into focus whatever if it is if revolution is the thing that we're bringing into focus, if it's, you know, we got to be real, real intentional. And that I, I guess that's where like I think about where strategy comes into. And I oftentimes, I don't like to like pit vision and strategy against one another because I think they're like, they walk hand in hand through life and literally is like the entire basis for the work I do um, in my business. <laughs> but it's just, it's, you know, I, I think about like, there's so many times where I'm like, we have to be so more strategic in the ways in which we're stepping into the work we're doing. And also, but not at the expense of being able to do the deeply embodied kind of um, intuition guided work at the same time. Well, I would just say that I'm looking for a proof of concept, right? So I'll use this example. Are we able to organize a general strike in this country right now if there was something egregious that happened? No. So then how would we be ready for a revolution if that came, right? We can't organize a, so for instance, my wife is a teacher and during COVID, I think they really were on the front lines and were thrown into it. And she has some serious feelings around how the rest of America treated her and teachers and other frontline folks like grocery workers. They were like applauded and like, there was like this cars that drove through and were like, you know, celebrating, but like what she wanted was like protection from being harmed, right? Not like thrown into it. And yes, definitely understand the impact that was happening with children. And it's a very complex thing. But the dividedness around that, because I think parents were then feeling like, what? I have three children at home and I got to work. So, but the, the, the way the system work is that 
these two camps are now pitted against each other, right? Parents are on one side and teachers are on the other, but they're not looking at it as like a community. Like, what's the solution for both, right? Can we work out a solution for both? There has to be. We have to talk about it. And that for me, like steps like those when we can't organize for the right thing because it's just so convoluted and so like so many different interests at play shows me that like when this if this thing was to collapse and it was to become you know very fluid choose your own adventure would happen very quickly and the people that have the power and the means and are the most organized what scares me about that situation is that the right have shown especially on january 6th that they are willing to take risks and they are organized um, in a way that I haven't seen, and I don't mean to add, I'm not saying like the left needs to show in a you know violent insurrection that they're organized. There's other ways to show organi- organization, and I think a general strike would be a clear sign that, say a general strike happened and then we walked into a moment like that, then I'd be like more confident that the left has, or even a broad coalition has the means, the organizational capacity to then be able to step in when a moment like that happens. One thing that you were saying that I was, well, just, I mean, I'm going back a little bit, but you were talking about the, you know, yeah, when shit hits the fan, like, the capitalists are fine. The folks with means are fine. You know, this is just a little anecdote, but my colleague of mine told me a story about how one of the folks she was working with as as a client, um, an organization she was working with, she was like, oh, well, we were able to go upstate to our, you know, our house in um, upstate New York, and oh, I just had some lighting installed so that my kids, when they're on Zoom, they actually have really good lighting behind them, you know, when they're, and I was just like, oh, okay. So, like, that's that's the concern is making sure that there's enough lighting, like, good proper lighting for your kid as they're attending Zoom school, you know? Like, how lovely is that? Would that be to just, like, have that be your biggest concern in the world? And, like, also, like, what the fuck is wrong with people that that is their biggest concern in the world? And that you would tell somebody else about it. You know what I mean? Like, they would tell someone else who's just, like, might not have been in the same kind of a boat where they could, you know, had the luxury of being able to, like, worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it's 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 shocking what comes out of people's mouths around their privilege um, and how they don't recognize that it is, yeah, just like an affront to kind of the life that, like, others are living that is, like, so much harder. I, I also think that the kids deserve nice lighting. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not saying there's, yeah. all kids. I'm just yeah. kidding. I'm just, just joking <laughs> around. But what you bring up to me is this discussion that I've been having with folks around hope and dystopian um, ism is that uh, there's folks living a dystopian life right now. So like there's this African and I can't remember his name because um, I found, I just found this discussion on the, um, he, I believe he wrote it in Locust Magazine as an interview, which is a science fiction magazine. Um, he's an African speculative science fiction writer. And he was he was challenging this idea of like dystopian stories uh, being something that is in the fictional fictional realm. Right. When there's like so when you brought up the idea of like what people were going through COVID and that this woman was able to provide lighting for her children and that was her concern. I was thinking about all the other children who are living a dystopian hellscape in real time. Like, so there's a pandemic 
their parents are on the front lines at a grocery store or just like or a teacher or whatever it is that like where they have to go out in that. I know people who are stripping naked in the beginning of the pandemic and washing themselves in their garage because they weren't sure if they would infect their kids because we just didn't have the statistics at the time. And then their kids were stuck in a room for seven hours on a Zoom. That's not education. And I also like I think it speaks to the fact that like some people also we just we never the parents didn't get time off, you know what I mean, to actually go properly care for their kids. We like we saw the that entire infrastructure folded. We don't look at the education system and give it the the credit that it deserves, but it's it's providing so much unpaid labor in, or unpaid. I guess it's not unpaid. Well, I mean, certainly unpaid labor, 100 percent that. But it's unpaid. I mean, it would go back to community like it's unpaid community care, too. You know what I mean? Or unreciprocated, certainly in in, in so many ways, um, not valued. Like, I remember I took a sociology class back in college a long time ago at this point, which feels actually a very long time ago. The teacher had said to me when we were talking about the National School Lunch Program and and how vital that was for so many different reasons, obviously for feeding kids. And she was like, but what's the role of like of schools? So not only are schools, you know, educating our kids, they're feeding our kids. They're providing all of their like social, emotional, you know, um, development. They're practically social workers, too, at this point. I bet your wife could speak to that. You know, we don't we don't recognize that those are so many things like unspoken things that are happening in schools. They're they're addressing trauma. I was having a conversation with a superintendent yesterday as part of one of the, the projects I'm working on. And he was speaking to just how important it was for everybody in the school to get trauma-informed training and so to be able to start operating from a trauma-informed perspective and I was like that's which is I mean obviously so very very important and also we're we're asking our teachers to be to really keep their eyes out for that trauma and to be and to be almost on the front lines of some of those things too in addition to being on the front lines of so many other things yeah, now that we're asking, not, I'm not asking them, but they're also asking them to bring a gun to school to like, you know, protect against school shootings. It's just, they keep stacking. So this is, if you look at what a teacher had to deal with like 40 years ago, and then what they have to do in their job description now, and all the things that have been added, yet then like you look at like in Kansas, or you look in like Georgia in teacher salary, I think you would see that, you know, it hasn't been commensurate with like the amount of things that have been added to their job description. The other thing I would like to recognize that I think is really important is that the the vast majority of teachers are women. And I think like if all these teachers were men, you better believe the money, the different support systems and all that would have been rolled out and they would be applauded just like cops are. Cops in the police and security state take up so much money that should be funneled to schools. But in the dynamic, I think that is playing out in why they've been able to get so much money is because they're men, mainly not all police officers are men. But if you look at like the majority of like who ends up becoming a cop and who ends up becoming a teacher and then let's bring it all back to the care work that we're all talking about. Like what's going on with policing is like there's a ton of lack of care work happening. (laughs) Like like that's like a nice way to put it. And, And then but in the schools. It's completely different. They're like being asked to do all this care work that is needed and necessary that sometimes isn't happening at home. Like, I, you know, it's just kids pick up all the things that are happening with us as adults and they're bringing it into schools and then teachers are doing the repair work 
or trying to do the repair work. And it's literally too much. You can't be a the child's like kind of parent, mother, um, teacher, psychologist, and um, counselor for how they should like position themselves for college or whatever. And then also ask them to do that for like 40 kids at the same time too. You right. <laughs> like or my partner, 500 in a week. That's unbelievable. Right. And then this is in a wealthy district. She's an art teacher and she sees 500 children per week. And she's spent every day at like 830. She's spent. How does she done. even? Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah. How, how the, does... the, it would be like how I was relieved of that two and a half hour commute, five hour commute every day. If my partner was able to have a life where she wasn't responsible for 500 kids emotional and social well-being during art class it it would just be like life-changing for her but i don't see it in the works the money we're willing to spend on policing versus we are in the schools makes it so that you know we just don't have the resources to be able to have like four art teachers in an elementary school sometimes i wish we could like earth could be in like a petri dish and you could be like hey it would be earth too like if you had like schools with like low policing and like it's in that, again, brings it back to visioning and using fiction. So like if you use fiction, you could play that out. Like that's what's beautiful about fiction is that you can dream and say like you can just build these worlds where this happened and just make it happen because you're the creator of that world. And then have like an Earth 2 or even just Earth 1 got its act together um, and decided to like ship funding from like either the military um, where we have like 2000 nukes ready um, and we have to pay to have those ready or the policing where we're over policing and, you know, gifting police like armed personal carriers because we overspent in the military. I would be so happy if we could start to redirect money towards schools. And I mean, I think the it's so interesting to think about the dynamic, I guess, between schools and, and police because like, oh, we are like some of the solution is like, oh, let's put the police in the schools because that'll fix things now, too. But like the student resource officers and things of that nature. I'm like, we've just like it's we've just even further like integrated like the police state into every aspect of our society. Yeah, I want to defund all of that stuff. It sounds good. Like that's if we were able to like really clearly like envision the future that we want, I think sorry, the first step becomes like disinvesting in the things that are causing harm, destruction, pain. Right. And I like that you switched your uh, language from defund to disinvesting, because I think it's like just brings up like a like if we if we're thinking in pictures, uh, you know, and we're kind of like playing out like how those words look, I think it's just a better word to use to describe what people want. Um, you know, like there's some folks that definitely would like to kind of like make the police a, a, a non-functioning entity in society. I don't I don't know totally where I stand on that. I'm, it's one of those things where I, I would like substantially less because I, I definitely know the statistics around policing and how they show up in marginalized communities, how racism shows up in uh, police forces and how it's been used historically in society. So I would love to do what Ronald Reagan wanted to do um, to governments, which is shrink it to the size that it could be like strangled in a bathtub, which is like not the best imagery coming out of my mouth. I'm not like one of those kind of people. But uh, it's just um, the police force as it stands now is used um, to police marginalized individuals uh, in communities. And 
that very much has a racial component, but it also has like a, you know, other marginalized communities like LGBTQ folks definitely have been on the you know, receiving end of the, you know, the bad side, uh, oppressed by the police. Any discussion that talks about the things that fo- police are doing wrong and not seeing them as this like hero in society is something that I think is a necessary discussion because in my opinion, uh, most cops aren't heroes, uh, and they really don't even solve crimes. They show up after a crime has been committed, and they oppress people because they have like mandates to you stop and frisk is a good example, and it's a really good example because it's happening in so-called liberal New York, where they were that's it's unconstitutional, it's not right, but because they were black and brown kids that don't have power. You better believe if that was happening in suburban Newton, Brookline, or any of the other, it it just wouldn't. And it's so disingenuous, like with these conversations around how they, how police are kind of held up in society is like, a good example, again, we were talking about teachers, right? And I don't know if you remember this, but there was a big, I mean, there was a big backlash to teachers again, around education and what they're teaching our children, banning books. Um, in southern states and that type of stuff scares me especially now that i like play in the fiction world and understand how powerful fiction is there's a lot of people who i've come to learn they get their orientation through books they you know they're not they're done with the news they are there's so many people that are done with the news like that doesn't mean that everyone's done with the news and this specifically is a question we're trying to answer inside of grist we have a lot of audience members that, you know, folks that contribute, members that care about the environment. They care, they like the news. But we've been asking the question recently, how do you reach the people who just don't want to read Gris for news? Like, they just don't like the news. And Imagine 2200 has been the answer. It is this climate fiction contest that I mentioned at the top of the hour that is focused on, you know, green, clean, and just futures. And yeah, so so when they started banning books, I was very nervous um, because I do see the power. So many people reach out and just say, "I love that you're telling you're get, offering a platform for people to look at the solutions, invest in hope, talk about the climate and how we get out of this crisis." So, just like trying to bring it full circle again. It reminds me, I was as I was like prepping for this call, then I went back and read your the essay you wrote for the kicking off of the 20 imagine 2200 and it was i think entitled you know we are what we nurture or that was certainly the piece that i kind of i took from it and it just feels like that summarizes so much of what we've already talked about you know at this point is like what is it that we actually want to nurture and call forth in this world and and you know how is that so connected to just our own personal identities and the identity of our community and and hope and joy. Like, it feels like it connects, that thread connects to so many of the different things we've talked about today. Yeah, for sure. Like, I I think I found that term on, like, there was, like, some psychology website around what you nurture. Like, it, it was, like, more of a, like, self every day, you know, if you wake up, kind of, like, you know, make sure to, like, open your shades, like, make your bed, and, like, you are what you nurture. You'll feel better from doing these things. And I was just, like, thinking about that on, like, uh, this this argument or this thing around how much we're investing in hope or not. And I was, like, we collectively as a society, we are, I mean, that's the most, to me, that's one of the most truest things. We are what we nurture. We nurture capitalism. We nurture consumerism. We nurture the fact that the police are seen as this, like, hero. 
I mean, if you ask many kids, like, you know, what kind of toy, like my favorite toy when I was a kid was a GI Joe, right? It's so like typical. It's so like gendered. It's, it's so powerful. Like what is engineered for us to like, I'm a question. I question things. So I question all things and critical thinking to me is like one of the most powerful things. So don't ban books and (laughs) uh, open up your imagination uh, as widely as possible. Thank you just so much for this. I'm like, I'm going to go think on just the different things I can be nurturing in my world. And just because that's like such a beautiful question to ask oneself, you know, what is it that you want to nurture? And how does that connect to the world you want to create? And so that's what I'm going to spend the rest of my day doing, you know, and eating cupcakes because I do have, I am going to pick up cupcakes after this too. So because Fridays are for cupcakes. Is there anything? Thanks for having me. Yeah. I am really appreciative of you stepping into this space and I want to listen to the other conversations you're having. Thank you to Tori Stevens for joining me in conversation today. If you want to learn more about his work, you can check out grist.org and the Imagine 2200 site or connect with him on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a five-star rating and review to help us reach more people. Make sure to follow Rise and Rouse wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss your chance to hear from someone who gives a damn. Follow us on Instagram at Rise and Rouse and sign up for my newsletter by going to allgoodstrategies.com. Rise and Rouse is created and hosted by me, Erin Allgood. It is produced and edited by Steph George of Stefania Audio. Production support from Grace Cleary Morin and Yana Krizanova. Our theme music is written and produced by Chris Marion. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you next week.